So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We have a lot to cover this morning. I'm excited about it. Um, So just to get you caught up, uh, last week we were in Matthew chapter 10 and we spent time listening to Jesus send out his followers on mission to reach the lost sheep of Israel and, and found out that he still gives a similar mission to you and me, right? So he sends all of us as his disciples to go and make more disciples. We saw that our mission is to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to those who have not yet believed, to model what life in God's kingdom looks like, and to make much of Jesus in our lives. That was kind of the big idea of yesterday or last week's message. Today, we're going to look at those who doubt Jesus. We're going to look at those who reject Jesus, and the title of our message this morning is Receiving Jesus. We're going to look at those who receive Jesus for who he is. We'll also look at the importance of the Old Testament, summarized in the person and work of John the Baptist. You might have heard the phrase before uh, that that some people might say, uh, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, uh, which is wonderful, right? I believe in the New Testament. Uh, But we also believe in the Old Testament. And both of these testaments are vitally important for our lives as followers of Jesus. We're going to get through all of chapter 11, but my goal is to really camp out there at the end uh, when we talk about receiving Jesus. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 11. We'll read the first couple of verses together and then pray. So Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray before we go any further. O God in heaven, we are grateful to gather together once again as the people of God to open up your word and to hear you speak. Lord, I pray that as we think about receiving Jesus for who he is, you would help us to rightly navigate the the rough waters of our own hearts and the rough waters of a culture that wants to uh, interpret you for its own agendas and designs. Lord, I pray that you would help us to humbly surrender and receive you as you are. And Lord, I pray that we would get a glimpse of the great reward that would be found for those who receive you as you are. Help us, God, to understand your word rightly. Help me to teach with clarity and authority. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we need to look at this morning is just what seems to be, for you and me, a very clear statement, but something that needs to be addressed from Matthew chapter 11, and that's this. Number one, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, all of the Old Testament has been telling you and me, and especially the the Jews of old, of someone who is to come. This Messiah, this anointed one, the Greek word for Messiah is the Christ. And John is in prison. John the Baptist, the one who went out before Jesus and shared the good news of uh, the gospel of repentance, was baptizing people for repentance Uh, and was proclaiming that someone was going to come after him who was mightier than him. Well, he's in prison, and he's starting to wonder. 
He's starting to wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the Christ? Now, for the first time since the birth narrative, Matthew uses the word Christ here in Matthew 11 to describe Jesus. That should key us into something really important. John was hearing about his deeds in prison, but the things that Jesus was doing and the things that John was hearing about Jesus wasn't lining up with John's conception of who the Messiah was supposed to be. Remember, John was in the wilderness preaching about repentance and judgment and the the coming Messiah. His message was like that of a prophet calling on sinners to turn from wickedness and escape the wrath of God. You think about like fire and brimstone preachers. That would have been John a lot of the time. And remember that the Messiah in that day was thought of as as like a, a warrior king, someone who would sit on the throne of David and Israel and conquer all of Israel's enemies for now and forevermore. And yet the deeds of Christ were leading John to reconsider his understanding of the Messiah. So he sends disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus responds in a beautiful way. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. And and Jesus aligns his teaching and his work that we've seen over the last few weeks from Matthew chapter 8 through chapter 10 with some important Old Testament texts, including Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. And what Jesus is showing John is, hey, you remember those prophets who said things about the one who is to come? Here's how I am fulfilling all of these things. When Isaiah talks about preaching good news to the poor, hey, I'm preaching good news to the poor. Remember when in Isaiah 35, it talks about the blind having their eyes open and the deaf having their ears unstopped. That's what I've been doing. So Jesus is coming to John and he's saying that my deeds are are justifying your hopes. So don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand that what the world is saying about who I'm supposed to be, don't let that bring doubt into your heart. Don't let that bring confusion into your mind. Jesus really is the Christ. And so he encourages John by pronouncing a blessing. Here in verse six, look at it again. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus says to the disciples to go and tell John, blessed is he who is not offended by me. In other words, if you receive me as I am, you will be blessed. And we'll get to more of that later on in the chapter. Many, many people around us have an improper understanding of who Jesus is or of what a savior of the world ought to be like. Right? I mean, you think about, I was talking to somebody yesterday about this. So in our culture, if you go to social media and entertainment, um, movies and things like that, uh, there's, a, there's a certain word that we use when we think about people who are kind of at the upper echelon of their craft. Uh, maybe the most famous actors or the most famous influencers on social media or the most famous people on YouTube or whatever it is. And we use the word icon to talk about them. And interestingly enough, that word icon is a sacred word. It's a, it's a religious word. It's, it's a word that we used to use when thinking about how if we looked through this image of something, we were looking through it to see God. And oftentimes, we find ourselves looking at the icons of our day and then importing into our own lives. That's what, that's what somebody who is like a savior 
is like. That's someone I want to model my life after. They're an icon to me. Many of us and and many of those around us have an improper understanding of who Jesus is or what a Savior ought to be or what a Messiah ought to be because the world is offering to them and to us false versions all the time. And as followers of Jesus, we need to hold up the scriptures and say, you don't have to look any further, right? Like he's right here. We have clear understanding. We have a clear explanation. We proclaim Christ from the word and we conform our faith to the word. We may have doubts about our faith, like John. We may have doubts about who Jesus is. We may have doubts about the word of God, but we can trust that when we go to the word, and we're surrounded by God's people, that the Spirit of God can provide us with reassurance, just like Jesus is reassuring John. And hopefully, just like Jesus, through his word, is reassuring us. Jesus really is the promised Messiah. Let's keep reading. Starting in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Well, if in the first six verses we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, Then in the second section, we see that John really is the forerunner. John is the promised forerunner. So the Old Testament gives us, particularly in the book of Malachi, some prophetic utterances that someone will come before the Messiah in the spirit of the prophet Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. His job was to come and make way for the Lord and his Messiah to come. And so Jesus takes this opportunity, now that the disciples of John are leaving, to speak to the crowds about John, and then concludes with the generation's response to both John and him. So many people around Jesus were apparently the same people who went to see John just a little while earlier. They went out into the wilderness and found John preaching and preparing the way for the coming Christ. And Jesus quotes here in verse 10 from Malachi chapter 3 to show that Jesus really is that promised messenger. He really is the one who will prepare the way. Then Jesus says something 
So encouraging, right? You almost wish that disciples of John would have overheard this as they're walking away. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a great encouragement to hear from Jesus. (laughs) No one born among women is greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. But then he keeps going and says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, what's Jesus saying? Jesus, uh, John was the forerunner of the Christ. He was the one who was speaking prophetic words about God and his Messiah. He was the one who came preaching repentance. He was faithful to God. Jesus just said he's the greatest man ever, ever born. And then he says, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, Jesus is saying to the crowds, and he's saying to you and me 2,000 years later, that something monumental has happened in the shift from John to Jesus. Something huge has just happened. While there are some, Jesus says, who try to attack that kingdom and take it by force to suit their own agenda. So you think about false teachers, and all throughout Jesus' day and in the surrounding culture, there were false messiahs and false prophets who would rise up and say that they were speaking on behalf of God for various reasons. Or maybe there's political leaders. I mean, you think about Herod Antipas or Herod the Great who would take these things about the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion and use it to suit their own political ends. Some who would try to attack the kingdom and take it to suit their own agendas. But ultimately, it is not threatened the actual kingdom itself. Jesus says that the law and the prophets prophesied until John. That's verse 13, right? All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And that John is Elijah. He is the coming Elijah of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So what's the point? What is Jesus trying to say here? That something monumental has happened. The law and the prophets have spoken and prophesied until John. John is Elijah. The point is this. Jesus is using John as an illustration that all of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, all of the law and the prophets is a preparation for the coming of Christ. Like, what's the big idea of the Old Testament? God's Messiah is coming to make things right. Like, if you want to sum up the Old Testament, God has made a promise and he will keep it. Like, that's the point of the whole Old Testament. And Jesus is using John as an illustration to say, John is the embodiment of all the things that the Old Testament has promised and prepared. John has now come, and now I have come. John's work as a forerunner to Jesus is just the last chapter in a book that has pointed us towards the Messiah since the beginning. And now the Messiah is here. The story continues, right? It's unchanging. God's story, God's plan remains unchanged. It's going out into history, but there is a real shift that has taken place. So notice then, students, that you and I have an incredible gift Because you and I have both the Old and the New Testament. We have both. We're able to look and see how God has put this story together. We can make connections that John and the prophets before him could not have fully anticipated. I mean, Peter talks about how those who are prophesying were thinking about us to come in the future. 
And yet, both Jesus and John have not met the expectations of the Jews of his generation. This is that last section that we just read, starting in verse 16. They don't fit the mold. In fact, verses 18 and 19 show us that for those who are blind to the truth of who God is, God's messengers will never be received well. Right? John came as very, very conservative in his clothing, in his actions, in his speech. He wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking. And what was the response of the crowds? He has a demon. This guy's wild. This guy's crazy. Jesus comes and lives in some ways completely different from John. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He's eating, he's drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Behavior is not the issue here. Blindness is the issue. Those who say that they know and follow God don't see God's messengers when they're right before them. Jesus and John acted very differently and both were criticized and rejected because they didn't fit the expectations. That's what, that's what verse 17 says, right? We played the flute for you, so you should dance, but you didn't. We sang a dirge, a sad song, but you didn't mourn. You were supposed to mourn. In other words, Jesus and John are not meeting the expectations of the crowds, which leads then to harsh words about failing to receive Jesus. Let's look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we recognize that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that John is the promised forerunner. But Jesus has strong words for those who reject him. Third point, judgment is the reward for refusing the Son. The Son comes, teaching, healing, raising the dead, performing many mighty works, he says, and still people reject him. So Jesus pronounces woes on three cities, or judgments, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all places close to the center of his ministry around Galilee. And because they have witnessed the work of the Son and rejected him, it will be worse for them than for Tyre, for Sidon, and for Sodom. These are cities in the Old Testament that are constant illustrations for God's judgment and wrath being poured out on wicked places. And yet Jesus is saying, you have all that you need to know that you need to turn from your wickedness and believe. And you reject it. You know those wicked cities in the Old Testament? If they saw what you saw, they would have repented long ago. They would have turned from their sin. You have been given much clearer revelation and evidence than those cities. But because you've experienced so much and seen so much and understood so much and still reject me, Jesus says, your judgment will be much more severe. 
What a terrifying statement. I mean, don't, let's not gloss over this. To those who have a clear introduction of the gospel and reject it, the judgment that they will be liable to will be more severe. And I can't help, as I was thinking through this week, I can't help but think about so many people in churches like ours who are around the people of God all the time and are hearing the word of God all the time and are sitting under gospel proclamation all the time and still run headlong into unrepentant sin and continue to reject that Jesus really is the Messiah. They continually reject that Jesus is the Son of God. They continually reject that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and offers life. And if this passage is true, it means it means something. So, so can I make... Can I make this plea to you? Just kind of listen in. If you have not trusted in Jesus, do you know that your exposure to the glory and beauty of the gospel will not be wasted? It won't be wasted. Do you know that it will actually condemn you further on the last day? You'll stand before God with no excuse, because you've seen and heard. Would you turn now, even even right now, and trust that Jesus really is the Messiah, that He really is the, the promised Christ, that He really does offer life instead of death, salvation instead of judgment. That you'd receive Jesus for who He is and come to Him in faith. Because the reward for receiving the Son is unbelievably great. So let's look at this together. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fourth point this morning. Rest is the reward for receiving the Son. Rest is the reward. After talking about being misunderstood and rejected from people in every direction, Jesus prays to the Father And he's teaching through his prayer. He's still surrounded by these crowds. And they're hearing him. God has hidden the truth about Jesus from the wise and the understanding or the self-righteous and the proud of his day. The Pharisees, the scribes, people like that. And instead, God has seen fit to reveal the truth to little children. 
He's revealed the truth to the weak, to the broken, to the insignificant, to the overlooked ones, to the poor in spirit. And Jesus clues us in, in his prayer, to the relationship that he has with his Father. The Son knows the Father alone. Alone. The only way that anyone can know the Father is through the Son. And who gets to know the Father? Those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. This is what Jesus is praying. Father, I know you. You know me. And the only ones who know you is me and whoever I choose to reveal you to. Students, because of our sin, we are spiritually sick, blind, deaf, and dead. We're bent away from the light and towards the darkness. So we need Jesus to do for us what we've seen him do throughout the book of Matthew. We need him to heal our sickness, to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, and to give us new living hearts. Without the work of Jesus applied to us by the power of the Spirit, all that will be left for us is judgment. We will not know the Father unless the Son reveals Him to us. But look at these beautiful verses. Who are the ones that Jesus calls? The ones who are heavy laden and labor. That's all of us. Jesus says, come to me. The offer is to anyone who would listen. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus and you will find rest. Have you ever worked like out in the yard all day? I remember when I was a kid, we, um, we, my parents built a house and I was probably in like second grade. And uh, I'm kind of looking over at Josh to see if he remembers this. Like when we had to lay sod, the side of our house, like just all day. I don't know if you've ever laid sod before. It's like not super fun and easy. And, you know, I'm like going into, I'm like seven years old. I'm like, you know, seven-year-olds have a basically infinite amount of energy. And I remember being just dog tired at the end of the day. Because all I've done is like bent over and thrown grass onto the ground. Have you ever had days like that where you just work and work and work and you just physically, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally just wiped out. And then you get a shower and you get cleaned up. You get some good food and then you lie down to go to sleep. For some reason, that bed feels more comfortable than usual. For some reason, that pillow is more sweet than it usually is. All that labor, all that work, all that burden that you've had to work with all day resolves into rest. And that rest is made precious because of the difficulty of the labor. So in a normal day, you're probably not very observant as to how comfortable your pillow is. It's a normal day. But when you're exhausted, you realize that it's a blessing. Students, the rest that Jesus is offering to those who are weary and heavy laden is infinitely more precious because the burden that he offers to remove is infinitely more heavy. Your sin and my sin is an infinitely heavy burden. 
And apart from Christ, we will bear that burden under the wrath of God forever. But what Jesus offers to you and to me and to all who would come at his call is to remove the burden and instead to give you his yoke, which is light and easy. Now it's a yoke, right? So you think about two oxen, they put on a yoke around their neck so that one who is more trained can lead the other one. So wherever the the leading ox goes, the other ox will go. We're taking on Jesus's yoke, which means wherever Jesus leads, we will go. But his yoke is easy and light. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. Not in comparison to the sin that we carry. Jesus always leads us to joy. Now his path to joy, don't miss this, his path to joy will often lead us through sorrow and pain and persecution and hardship. But Jesus is still able to say that his yoke, that his leadership is easy and light. Why? Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. His attitude towards sinners like you and me, is not anger, it's not fury, it's not wrath, it's not annoyance, it's not disgust, it's gentleness. He's gentle with sinners like you and me. His heart for us is humble and compassionate and kind. He lives to draw us closer into the fellowship that he has enjoyed for all eternity with his Father. And the good news of the gospel that we hear today is that sinners can actually, truly, finally, fully find rest. And we find it in the gracious heart of Jesus. The front end of this message was all about Jesus being misunderstood misinterpreted, and rejected. And I'm afraid that some of us, even though we're followers of Jesus, even though we would say, yes, I have given my burdens to the Lord, I have turned from my sins and placed my faith in the Savior, I am a Christian. I am concerned that some of us, even though we are followers of Jesus, still have misconceptions, still have misunderstandings about the heart of Christ for folks like you and me. If you are not in Christ, so if you would be honest with yourself and say, I've never trusted Jesus. I I still live ultimately for myself. I haven't surrendered my life to his lordship. If you're not in Christ, then know that Jesus is calling you right now from this passage of scripture to come. Come and find rest for your soul. Come and have your burdens removed. Come and have your sins forgiven. There is nothing to clean up. There's nothing to make straight. There's nothing to get right before you come. You just leave your burden of sin to Jesus and receive his rest. That's all that you need to do. If you're in Christ, know that Jesus loves you right now. That right now, in this moment, thinking about all the things that you did that you should not have done this week or things that you ought to have done but left undone this week, right now, in this moment, He delights in you. 
that he's praying for you, reminding the Father ever and always that you have been covered by his blood, that you've been made alive by his Spirit. Know that if you are in Christ, that Jesus longs to bless you more than you could possibly imagine. That he isn't repelled or disgusted by your weakness and your frailty. And goodness knows all of us are weak and frail. When you get hurt, say you trip, stub your toe, do something. When you get hurt, your whole body responds, right? If I stub my toe, my hands are going to grab that foot. I just can't help it. My body has this natural desire that when a part of it is wounded, it wants to bring healing to that part. All of us understand that. And when you bring healing to that injury, your whole body finds relief. It's like if you have something stuck in your eye, you're just like, you can't see, like everything is wrong. And when you get that thing out of your eye, you're just like, ha, all is right with the world again. Christian, if you are in Christ, then you are a member of the body of Christ. He delights in dressing your wounds. He wants to bring healing to your brokenness. He delights in making you whole. He delights in giving you rest. So my hope and prayer for you and for me is that we would once again lean into the truth of Matthew chapter 11. That we can come to Christ And if we come to Christ as He is, not with an agenda, not to get our way, not with a misinterpretation of Jesus as the person that just kind of does whatever I want Him to do to make my life better. If we come to Christ as He is, we will find rest. Doesn't mean that all of the tensions and sorrows and brokenness of this world will immediately evaporate, but it does anchor our lives to the truth that our burdens have been taken away, that Jesus' yoke is easy and light, and that the promise of the future is a promise in which we will find true and eternal rest with the one who offers to give it to us even now. So let me pray for you.